Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. I am Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio is Jeremy Bean. And Dr. Luke Gatlin. No, don't call me that. Call me Professor Dr. Luke Gatlin. Professor. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. The ever humble Professor Dr. Luke Gatlin. Esquire. We've got a big week in religion related news here. As of the recording, the Pope is in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Spreading the love, so to speak. And the fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has had their children taken away from them and is embroiled in a legal dispute. So lots of interesting things going on. Mostly dealing with either directly or by extension the abuse of children. It's child abuse week here on Reasonable (laughs) Doubts. Well, the abuse by the proliferation of vast numbers of children through breeding programs. I always think of that. I just when they said that there's 416 children, I thought of the Monty Python movie where they're all kids lining the rafters in the meaning of life. And Every sperm is sacred. It's medical experiments for the lot of you. Can't you have your balls cut off? <laughs> Not if I <laughs> want to remain a member of the fastest growing religion in the world. God would surely see through such a trick. And I'm sure there is some joke about the Pope and a large amount of children being taken away from their parents, but I, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> something there. You are engaging in Schadenfreude, which is a German term for secularists making fun of us. By the way, has anyone else noticed that the Pope sounds like Dr. Strangelove? In the creeping <laughs> secularism, <laughs> we, have, we will throw out the Western values that are cherished by all of us. Boy, I guess he's somewhere between Colonel Clink and... You, uh, Hogan... <laughs> I know nothing. So, so in other words, that's why we're not going to talk about the news. That's why we're not going to talk about the news, because it will lead to Dr. Strange love impressions and uh, child abuse jokes, which are not really a hit with the listeners. Yeah, and people aren't as into that as we are. So, To each his own. Mm -hmm. So we are going to instead open up the mailbag and uh, take a look at some of our listener email here. This letter comes to us from Sandra who says, if possible, I'd like to hear more about the evidence of people being genetically predisposed to hold religious beliefs, i.e. what is the evolutionary advantage in being hardwired to believe. People are terribly interested in the whole God gene phenomena. Bring time for evolutionary psychology of religion. Sandra goes on to say, I wonder whether we're all hardwired or some of us have something missing, i.e. a capacity to accept stories on faith alone. So, in answer to Sandra's question, we turn to our very own Professor Dr. Luke Galen and another segment of God Thinks Like You. Do you believe that God thinks like you think? Do you believe that God stands together on identical positions? Do you believe that God thinks like you think? When we believe that God thinks our thoughts, we're humanizing God. God thinks like you think. 
First, I'd like to say as an aside, if there was a genetic advantage to scientific thinking, uh, you know, you'd have a lot more nerds with girlfriends, but that's clearly not the case. Wah, 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 wah. I, I've successfully breeded. It's my one year and seven breeding program, <laughs> as in Spock's Amok Time episode. Oh, man. Would you care to copulate? How would you like to have a sexual encounter so intense it could conceivably change your <laughs> phenomenological <laughs> views? Is that no? Hey, where are you going? <laughs> God thinks like you. All right. So we're talking about evolutionary psychology of religion, which is a popular topic. And there's a whole slew of books. And uh, they even had a New York Times piece a couple months ago. You guys probably saw that on summarizing the various playas in the field from the Scott Atran uh, and the um, David Sloan Wilson, mm-hmm. who tend to be on the adaptationist side of things. And we have the uh, books like The God Gene from Dean Hamer, mm. who wrote The Gay Gene. Mm. Uh, and then uh, Pascal Boyer's uh, Religion yeah. Explained. Boyer's my boy. He's your boy. Nerd alert. Uh, <laughs> and also, actually, there's a book called Minds and Gods from Todd Tremlin at Central Michigan University, which is a good, thin mm. kind of primer. And then Justin Barrett, who went to Calvin College here and who's an evangelical Christian, wrote Why Would Anyone Believe in God, which also is a very good primer, slim volume for those people. So. Maybe we could put links on the websites or something. But, uh, yeah, these are all theories about uh, integrating why, um, you know, about the fields with evolutionary psychology and anthropology and cognitive psychology. Why, what are the structures of belief and are they in some ways adaptive or byproducts of systems that are adaptive? And what's the correct answer? As in everything in science, it's we don't know. It depends. We need more money for research. Man, this science <laughs> stuff sucks. Science Starting sucks. to sound like a church. Uh, I just uh, want one book to tell me what the answer is I so I don't have to think anymore. We're not going to know until you give us money. The only book scientists should read is Dude, Where's My Grant? It's another <laughs> science joke. Anyway, uh, well, the answer uh, – actually, the, the New York Times article is a good primer because it talks about how the uh, they break into just generally two camps. Uh, that There's – people who believe that there's specific adaptations for religion. That is, religion is in some ways survival or reproductive advantage. So some of these theories would be group cohesion, that religion leads people to whatever uh, gives people an impulse towards group cohesion and, and in-group solidarity would be beneficial, and then, uh, or that there would be some um, survival advantage to having costly signaling. That's another big theory where if I do a, a gesture that could not be faked, that that is evidence that I'm a loyal group member. So like, you know, slashing your skin and penile sub-incision and mutilation and all those, get your teeth knocked out. Those type of ceremonies, <laughs> if you're not committed to that religion, you know, uh, you're not going to go through those ceremonies. So I would recognize you as a loyal tribes member. And Do you want to be a member of a club? Exactly. Do you want to know what's involved in that? We spread you with honey and lay you on a fire anthill. <laughs> Uh, or as a, I think the example in the article was that uh, Jews in, in uh, the orth- ultra-Orthodox are living in, you know, 100-degree desert heat and mm-hmm. they're wearing black suits and ties with hats and beards and, you know, sacred underwear, that sort of thing. But did, those are, did they wear the ties back in ancient times? Uh, hair shirts were, were yeah, okay. more along those lines. But uh, the costly signaling theory would say that it's adaptive to have rituals and uh, overt ceremonies to prove to other people that look at me. I'm a loyal member of the group. I, I'm willing to go 110% for the Lord, and that that would be adaptive. So that's another type of hypothesis for why r- rituals. But what comes is, is first? That a, is that a just-so story, though? Because I could say on the very end, a bunch of people deciding to wear 
black clothing and hats in 100-degree weather in the desert would be not adaptive. Right, but why, so why wouldn't it have been, why wouldn't somebody go come along, I, and I don't believe that this is the, an entire account, but what they would say is, why wouldn't somebody come up and say, this is ridiculous, why don't we just right. wear, like, you know, Speedos or something that's a lot much more comfortable, right. and hey, yeah, and then, then everybody on board. But it seems as though there's a race to who can be the most self-flagellating, the, oh, most, okay. the most toughest guy, the the person who's willing to go the extra yard for the Lord. Almost like an exaggerated male trait in Mm -hmm. sexual selection. Like this is so over the top that it's a barrier to And it tends to be more men than women, so that's another thing is that it could be involved in things like male bonding, male initiation. You know, when you're a female, you don't have to do that sort of thing, whereas males, you know, are more expendable, obviously, and they have to then say, breed with me, I'm the toughest person, and it gets intertwined with the religious aspect of things because God Mm -hmm. says so instead of just it's a peacock tail. I'm willing to not be known as the number one self-flagellator. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, see, and I think that's why um, I think both and Jeremy feels this way and I do that the byproduct theorists like Pascal Boyer mm-hmm. are probably more on the right track. Uh, and in a nutshell, their theory is that religion isn't specifically adaptive. It's not something that you don't have a gene for believing this or that, but that religion and I guess you'd call it supernatural concepts mm-hmm. are byproducts of aspects of thinking, the way your brain is set up, uh, that simply ride on top of those as a uh, as a exaptation, or, or I guess a Stephen Jay Gould thing would be a, a, a spandrel. And religion isn't one thing. It's different parts of your brain that have to do with different, totally different systems. So things like being able to recognize cause and effect is very adaptive. Having a parts of your brain that try to predict agency detection. There's something, if something happens, it's something controlled by an external agent. Or um, things like predator-prey detection. That all those things are separate aspects of your brain that would have been adaptive for us, but that religious and supernatural concepts are successful to the extent that they can that they can lasso all those things together into mm. a coherent explanation. So what does that say about those of us who don't have that? That's a tougher question to answer. I think that, that Boyer, uh, you know, he only gives a few, a uh, little bit of space in his book to that, but I think that these things can be overridden just like optical illusions can be overridden or, or that uh, non-scientific flawed you know, kind of thinking can be overridden that you would say, uh, like things with like behavioral economics, we know now that people are non-rational things, that they are more mm-hmm. averse to risk than they are to, uh, or, or they you know, do certain things that are not totally uh, logical, that you can overcome that. You can train a person to say, here's your tendency, and that if you learn things like scientific and critical thinking, that you can then say, oh, my tendency would have been to do this, but I can now acknowledge that that is my tendency and to correct that. So we can override the predisposition for supernatural thinking with more logical, rational thinking. That's part of well, it, I think. And could we just think of, say, a, a more scientifically minded person just being on a different side of the spectrum than a religious person. I mean, we're still pattern recognition animals. We still, you know, maybe not agent detection, but scientists will use design language and metaphors such as the the molecule wants to bond with other molecules of this type and will use some of the same kind of anthropomorphizing language that a religious person would use. It's just a more refined version of it that has been purified, I guess, or has removed a lot of the supernatural elements. I, well, I think a lot of the, the components would remain the same in a non-religious person. That is, a lot of those subsystems of 
agency detection or, you know, like uh, spiritual experiences. Many people will become very emotional listening to music or, you know, you listen to a fine symphony. You still have that thing, only you don't combine that with the other subsystems that say, oh, that's God doing this. If I feel emotional, it's from an outside agent. If right. I feel that, you know, that, that the, the coupling between them, that, that groups together under religion, that those things are, those bonds are broken more and we have the experiences separately, but we don't put it together and therefore this must be God. Mm-hmm. And there are some theories, though, about that of, on the genetic level that maybe non-religious people are somewhat different, you know, have different wiring from a genetic standpoint. I think, wasn't it Dawkins that said there's a gene for religiosity and I... Regret that I don't have it, or right. somebody. One of the mm-hmm. guys said that, but I think that there is some evidence that uh, there's a genetic link to personality traits. So, yeah. which most people don't have a problem with, with like extroversion, introversion, or some sort of personality style temperament that you have. That there might be a link between having a more conventional, traditionalist personality or, or temperament, uh, and you know, and that that would usually in our culture, when you're traditional and confo- and you get shunted into a more mm-hmm. religious direction. So there might in fact be some. Differences in wiring between people that cause them to be cranky skeptics, but but that, but that's the point is you know oftentimes we see this problem in other areas when genetics comes into things like uh, the article about the you know you'll see an article in the press come out about a obesity gene that comes out mm-hmm. and uh, who was it uh, Conan O'Brien who said yes they've discovered the obesity gene and it's chocolate covered and has a creamy nougat center. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. uh, people roll their eyes and uh, and just find this stuff ridiculous because the science reporting overgeneralizes it. And people get this impression that there's one gene in there that somehow mm-hmm. codes for obesity or the divorce gene that, that codes for divorce instead of realizing, like you said here, instead of there being a God gene, like people are either religious or non-religious, that there's a whole... There's aspects of personality and temperament that fit better with religion rather than it being just a straight one-to-one correlation. There's there's a religious gene and a non-religious gene. There's a much more elaborate system at work than than simply an on-off switch. Yeah, if you read the the God Gene book by Dean Hamer, you know, which obviously Mm -hmm. was – he chose that title because it would sell. Uh, That gene is simply a gene that works in the serotonin system – uh, which most people know is involved with things like you know mood and temperament, uh, and that um, there's a certain allele that you get a variation of that gene that leads to differences on a scale of self-transcendence traits. That is the ability to, to go with the flow or become very wrapped in poetry or music and things like that. People that score dif- somewhat differently on that have this different form of the gene. So it's that the mediational mechanism for that. There might be a lot of genes like that that, that push you in slight. Uh, small ways into this or that type of temperament and that you would go with the flow more in some instances than others and then maybe set you up on a pathway uh, to becoming more enamored of supernatural type things. Well, if that was the God gene, you, you know, we would almost hope for it. <laughs> I, I, w- I would think another candidate for the God gene, at least from some of our past conversations, Luke, would be the whatever gene codes for authoritarian behavior. Well, actually, it's one of the areas that they look at is that the traditionalism and the personality that is linked to authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. That's that one of the personality tra- that authoritarianism is in fact like a personality trait: the tendency to be deferential to authority, don't rock the boat, you know, uh, don't go into crazy music and complex things. Why would you want to listen to a poem or jazz or something like that? You know, classic rock's good enough for me. That those those things might actually be in some ways a combination of your upbringing 
and your genetic makeup. Not don't be avant-garde. Those people tend to be much, you know, atheists and agnostics and much lower on authoritarianism. The answer to the caller's email or the listener's email with this is that, you know, there's at the stage now we're generating a lot of hypotheses to what are the links between mm -hmm. some of these evolutionary psych models, which have proved very fruitful in other areas of psychology, like mental illness and or children's development, and the links between that and religion, I think that what's the, some of the especially fascinating work that's being done is with things like children. How do you acquire things like folk psychology, folk supernatural beliefs? They have things like at what age do kids start to acquire God concepts? What age do kids start to differentiate you know, death, uh, a dualism type mentality? And so there's a lot of ways that you can actually now start to test this. So in, in the same way that behavioral economics is becoming like evolutionized with people looking at adaptive game theory or how people's brains respond to that, you can do the same thing with, with religion. So we're just at the beginning of this field. So answers will be forthcoming, and I'm sure this is a topic that we will be discussing much more later on, especially when we get Steven Pinker on the show uh, <laughs> and Richard Dawkins. And, yeah, uh, sure. They're, they're lining up. It's just it's so hard have, to get to everyone. We don't have time to interview everybody yeah, who wants to be on the show. It is yeah. tricky. But, you know, at some point, yeah. you know, Rich, we're getting to you. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me, Mr. If, Fletcher. Mr. Hitchens is on the phone. I'm a little busy right now. I'll tell him, tell him that to you're hold, not here. Please. Thank you. All right, we are going to move on to another listener email from one of our favorite listeners and one of our biggest fans, Uncle Groucho. Yes, Uncle Groucho. Uncle Groucho always has some of the sweetest things to say. I don't think he's actually the uncle of uh, anyone, certainly not any of us. He's Well, I mean, he's kind of our cyber uncle. He is. That <laughs> sounds like... Oh, boy. He touched there, me where a, my yeah. cyber swimming suit covers. <laughs> so I was going to say that's another in for another child molestation joke. We just can't stop it. Something about pedophilia. Uh, just oh, like you and, man. I mean. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Do you think they could do some sort of diagnosis uh, on air of us based on our comments you and wouldn't throw us know all what in it jail? Is. Good Lord. So what does Uncle Groucho have to say? <laughs> okay. Uncle Groucho wrote us a while ago with a, a very uplifting email. And we didn't have a chance earlier because of the Hitchens event and other things to read it. But I uh, I wanted to have that chance. So it's a little late, Uncle Groucho, but we're, uh, we're giving you the shout out here. Uh, he writes, hey, guys, found your podcast just the other day uh, for the first time and just have to tell you I really dig the show. Uh, so thank you. It's smart, respectful, funny, well-produced, and well-researched, and he loves the Skeptics Sunday School uh, segment, which is so, – so we thank you for that. And Uncle Groucho was saying, aside from the let's go eat some babies now comment, which I personally found hilarious, the level-headed case you calmly make for rational thought is done in such an honest and rational way that any thinking person would have to look seriously at the points you make and consider them which I think he's um, uh, being very, very generous there. And he goes on to say, I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that asking certain people to really examine this stuff has got to be one of the scariest things in the world for them because it has the potential of literally destroying their lives. Yet it is a chance, I believe, worth taking, and I know of which I speak. For a guy who spent most of his life as a hardcore fundy Christian preacher, the journey I've made from hardcore believer to hard-nosed realist has been, as 
for many people in the same boat, long, painful, and arduous, but one I could not have not made, basically because I can read and have a semi-functioning brain. Curses. <laughs> in the process, I lost family, friends, and a sense of community that I never noticed was even there till it was gone. Wow, that was rough. Still is. He says, my group was Church of Christ. What's that, you ask? Well, go to Southern Baptist, take a hard right, and when you get the snake handle in, veer to the left just a little bit and park on the grass. That was my crap. <laughs> I think it's because of my own journey that your discussion of the lack of an atheist community struck me as a particularly important one. I haven't been a joiner of anything since I left the church, and... Uh, no, he goes, I haven't been a joiner of anything since I left the church. Not sure how I feel about that. Hope you touch on that topic again sometime. That's big. So I wanted to say thanks for Uncle Groucho. That's not the only email he's sent us. He's actually been very encouraging and stuff and uh, um, um, got got kind of upset one time when we didn't uh, when we didn't release a show for so long. But I wanted to share it up because... Um, um, he was sharing something that it's not all uncommon to hear atheists talk about, and that is how difficult it is um, to risk not having a community, not having a support network. Uh, that's something we tried to address. And and part of dealing with that, um, I wanted to tie it into something recently that happened with me, uh, and that is sometimes we just need to let people know that the atheist is not the scary, demon, immoral, Stalinist type of person that people assume they are. So I recently, as a, as a teacher, came out of the closet myself. I've never done that before um, in class. Um, I'm, you know, out in the public world, I'm a open and honest atheist. But for some reason, I've always, I've always felt a little uncomfortable at least in the classroom setting as a teacher, ever being open about what my point of view is. And I think part of that is just intellectual consistency. I really would not like somebody of a religious background going out and preaching their point of view in class. And and, uh, and I respect the power that comes from the podium that, um, you know, once you are in that position, you're in a place of authority. and uh, And some students will take you know, we'll take that seriously, especially if this is the only representative of a certain subject that they've ever heard. Uh, I teach a world religions class, and I'm always careful to try to um, make sure the students understand that the contents of a religion and the believers who follow it are not the same thing as the stereotypes that we sometimes have of that religion. I don't know where I was going with that. I was going to try to say something, but now that I'm thinking about it, all this information is rather personal, except to say uh, it, it, it was, anyways, it was a really refreshing thing for me to do. I think I was, I think I was afraid because um, teaching a world religions class, teaching a Bible as literature class, I, I thought maybe, you know, people would have this stereotype that it's not appropriate for an atheist to teach these subjects, which is ridiculous. Of course it is. It's, it's no more threatening for an atheist to teach world religions, for example, than it would be to have a Christian minister, who is the former guy who taught it, uh, teach a world religions class. And in fact, I think you could even make the case that an atheist is better qualified to teach a class like that objectively, because 
an atheist doesn't come to it with any sort of religious belief that would say, for example, if you were a if you were a devout Christian, you might be of the mind that other religions and other faiths were lies, uh, heresies from Satan, and that people who believed them would be condemned to hell. Or you, even if you didn't take that hard of a line, you might think that your particular religion was more valuable or had more of a corner on the truth than other ones might. Whereas an atheist can just look at it as, hey, this is different human beings trying to understand their world and the universe they live in and find it fascinating in in that regard. So I kind of got over my own fear and decided to let uh, let my students know that the devil does not have horns, so to speak. And uh, I think it went pretty well. It was more more of an important thing in my life than it was to anybody else. But I feel for Uncle Groucho and how difficult that is to challenge one's religious viewpoints and to be out in the open as an atheist. And uh, uh, I guess we all need to do that. We all need to let our friends and family and other people know that uh, we're unbelievers, but we're people too. We can have our own communities and start start being more open about these things. And maybe some good will come of that. One of the most important things we can do is simply to let people know that we exist. Unlike their gods. We're here. We're clear. Get used to us. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, exactly. But sort of related to that are issues of free speech. And on that topic, I am glad to say that we have an interview with Ed Brayton of the very popular blog, Dispatches from the Culture Wars. It's one of Seed Magazine, an excellent excellent science magazine. One of Seed Magazine's most popular blogs, right behind P.C. Meyer's Ferangula. Ed Braden talks about the interconnection between science, culture, politics, and law. We're very excited to bring to you an interview with Ed Braden. Brayton, thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thank you for having me. Many of our listeners probably know you from Dispatches from the Culture War, your blog on scienceblogs.com. I'm a big fan. I really enjoy uh, a lot of your articles, and and, uh, especially being from Michigan and you being a a Michigan author, it's awesome to see uh, your commentary on things that are happening right here in, in our own state of confusion. How do you end up here in Michigan? Are you a Michigan native? I, I born and bred. Born in Lansing. Um, spent the first nine years of my life in Lansing, and then my parents got divorced. And I went with my dad, and we ended up in Portage, mm-hmm. uh, where I went to junior high and high school. And then after uh, uh, after high school, back to Lansing for college. Uh, and so I've sort of bounced back and forth between Lansing and the Kalamazoo area several times. And then about five years ago, moved up to Stanton, uh, which is a, a small town sort of northeast uh, of Grand Rapids. So I imagine you probably, um, how do people react when they ask you, you know, what do you do? And you tell them that you're a commentator on culture and science and, and journalist and all that. What's their reaction? It probably depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, you know, for some people it's, oh, wow, that's really cool. And for some people, I mean, in, in, <laughs> in Stanton where I live, I, I, for example, I host a weekly poker game. 
And uh, one of the other players asked me recently, what, uh, uh, what is it you do for a living? And I said, I'm a writer. I said, well, what do you write about? And I said, I write about basically, you know, the stuff your mother told you never to talk about in public. <laughs> you know, politics, religion. <laughs> That's what I write about, you know. Um, and uh, uh, then that just sort of gets a blank stare, you know, up mm-hmm. there. But, um, uh, you know, sort of, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I think, I mean, at least for my family and friends, I mean, everybody's just happy for me that I'm, I've, I've reached the point where I can make a good living mm-hmm. just with my writing. And I was in the mortgage business for many years and, and got out of that about a year and a half ago, just as everything was collapsing. Good timing. Um, yeah, good timing. <laughs> it was quite fortuitous that that was about the time I started to be able to make a living at this. Um, but this was never my, I mean, I, I think I knew I always wanted to be a writer, but that's not why I started the blog. I mm-hmm. certainly never imagined that it would turn into what it is. I mean, I started it in November, 2003. So four and a half years ago that I started it on Blogspot, Um, and, uh, you know, it was just a place for me to rant really, you know, and, um, I, I never imagined it would turn into anything big. And then it, you know, just kind of kept you know, word of mouth just kind of kept it growing and growing. And, and then I ended up uh, registering my own domain and putting up a, a site there. And it just kept growing. And, and it sort of went in big leaps and bounds where there would be a certain subject that got a lot of attention and got me a lot of incoming links. And then, you know, all of a sudden my my readership would jump by 30 or 40 percent, you know, and, and they'd stick around. You know, they, they kept coming back. And, uh, and then 2006, then I got uh, Seed Magazine contacted me when they were putting together the Science Blogs domain. And uh, since I write a lot about science and, and um, asked me to be a part of the first group on there and, uh, and offered to pay me for it, which <laughs> sure, sure, you're going to pay me to not? do what I've been doing this for free therapy. for three years anyway, you know, <laughs> and then that just, you know, opened up all of these other doors to write for other publications and do more public speaking. And, and, and then, um, you know, now I've got sort of a, I sort of have two main writing jobs. Uh, one is the blog itself for Seed Magazine and then... The other is actually a fellowship with the Center for Independent Media, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that have the Michigan Messenger domain. Um, and so I do both of those, and and you know between the two of them, I'm able to make a good living doing what I did for free for several years. So I'm I'm, I'm extremely lucky, very fortunate. I mean, how many people get to do what they would do for free? That's it's yeah. not really like it's I have a, a job. It's a dream. Yeah. Now I can go to a lot of places to find information on on pseudoscience or what's the latest critique of the trash that's coming out of, uh, of William Dembski's mouth or something like that. Um, but one of the reasons why I so much enjoy reading what you write is because you often focus on the intersection of science, religion, and law. And I was wondering, um, do you have any background or law, or what was your interest in, what got you so interested in law? Yeah, I mean, the, the subtitle of my blog, as you know, is Thoughts from the Interface of Science, Religion, Law, and Culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just fascinated by the way these issues interact. And, and so mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's just always been an interest to me. I don't have any official background in law at all. I've never been to law school. Um, I have reached the point where I can speak about the subject intelligently enough that I'm able to fool people. Um, <laughs> I'm on the religion law listserv. It's a, an email mm-hmm. list of religion professors of law all over the country that tend to specialize in church-state law. And I'm on that mailing list. And I've had two of them, uh, including one really prominent um, law professor, email me after we've had a discussion about something and say, uh, where do you teach? I've never heard your name, you know? <laughs> uh, which, you know, blows my ego up 
uh, immensely that that you know I've, I've written about it intelligently enough that they think I'm a real expert. So um, it, to me, it's just a matter of uh, you know just a subject that fascinates me. So I've read a lot about it. Um, my background, uh, you know, academic background was that I'm a college dropout. Um, I dropped out of school in the middle of my junior year to become a stand-up comic. Uh, yes, my parents were thrilled. Um, and uh, I spent about four years on the road doing comedy. Well, one of the things about doing comedy is you got nothing but free time. I mean, you're on stage for a half hour a night, 45 minutes a night, and the rest of the time is yours, and you're in hotel rooms in strange towns where you have no friends. And so for me, that was an opportunity while I was on the road to just read everything, you know. And so I probably learned more in that four years than I did in my two and a half years in college just studying on my own. And law was one of the things that just really fascinated me. So, um, And same thing with science, same thing with religion. And so I just, uh, you know, I, I sort of grew up as a voracious reader and, and I'm mostly self-educated on these issues. But, uh, you know, I have, have a, a good enough understanding on them that I can at least pass through those fields and not have people say, you know, who's the interloper? Mm-hmm. So it's not all the time that I get the opportunity to have a comedian on the show. And one of the things I love about comedy is that comedians get to say things and they are heard that other people couldn't couldn't say. Right. Teachers, lawyers, public officials, just private citizens. Nobody would pay attention to them. But comedy has a way of somehow dropping our guard and getting us to see things. You're challenging a lot of our sacred cows uh, in your writing. You're trying to get people to see things from a more critical perspective. And, uh, and you're quite funny when you're doing it. And I'm, but I'm wondering, is that intentional? Um, and does it help? Do you find that that I, I makes think, you more accessible? I don't think it's people? intentional so much as it is just part of who I am. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a sarcastic person by nature. Um, and, you know, my background is in comedy. So, yeah, I, you know, I make it funny when I can. Um, and certainly people will tend to listen more. Uh, if you give them a laugh or two along the way, you know, the spoonful of sugar theory. Um, so I think it's just more a matter of who I am. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we've been talking about Bill Hicks. And one of the things that Bill Hicks said was the job of the comedian is to say, wait a minute, while the consensus is forming. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, comedians get to speak the truth in a way that very few others can because it's couched in terms of humor. And you can smuggle in. It's a Trojan horse. You can yeah. smuggle in rational thought with jokes um and 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 at its best that's what comedy does at its best it it tells the truth Mm -hmm. like that it critiques the status quo when you look at i mean george carlin at his best is raging at the status quo is holding up a mirror to society and saying this is fucked up look Mm -hmm. at this you know and that's what Bill Hicks does. It's what Doug Stanhope does. It's what comedy at its best has always done. And they get standing ovations for destroying people's illusions yep. on stage. I was never that good or I'd still be doing it. <laughs> you know, comedy can also help us cope. And we're dealing with a lot of issues right now. Our show is mostly directed at, um, we're a skeptical podcast, but there's a lot of people who know science better than us. And they're doing that job perfectly well. Uh, We know theology, and so we try to counter a lot of the arguments that we'll hear from the religious right, theological topics about historical topics, uh, other things in society. One of the biggest that crosses my mind is this perception um, that you spoke recently um, to CFI Michigan about, which is the ACLU, 
anti-Christian lawyers union, as some people like to call it. Why do you think the religious right is so angry about the ACLU and spends so much energy trying to attack an organization that is, has been founded to protect people's religious freedoms and other civil liberties? If I really look at the explanations for why the, why the anti-ACLU crowd is so anti-ACLU, you know, I talked about the fact that it's a great fundraising tactic and it brings the money flowing in. That's only part of the answer. The ACLU is an enormous threat to them because they are a threat to the position of superiority that they have long held in American culture. The ACLU has consistently opposed the imposition of Christianity. And for a great many conservative Christians, it's a violation of their rights if they can't impose their views on you. If they can't make you say prayers to start a school day, that's a violation of their religious rights, you know, in their mind, in, in their perceptions. And so these things that the ACLU is historically against and has fought successfully to get out of public schools uh, and, and to make the government be more neutral on these issues are a threat to Christian hegemony in our culture. And I think they look at that and they're very threatened by it. They see their influence diminishing, and it is. They're right. I mean, they, this is a correct perception on their part, that that influence is diminishing in our culture. And they are so convinced that that results in people burning in hell, that if they don't have that kind of influence, more people are going to not believe, and the world really is going to go to hell in a handbasket, that this is the enemy to them. And in their minds... The ACLU is quite literally an agent of Satan. <laughs> you know, they, they, conservative Christians tend to perceive the world in terms of this great celestial spiritual battle. It's God versus Satan, and you're either, you know, it's the George Bush thing. You're either on God's side or you're on Satan's side. And, there is, and they have little room for nuance and little room for moderation and little room for, uh, for the notion that, that there are shades of gray on this. And so for them, the ACLU is simply an agent of Satan, quite literally under Satan's control. Um, and so for them, they're, they're taking part in the greatest battle, you know, the defining battle uh, in, in all of existence as far as they're concerned. And so they're very passionate about it. They're very committed to it. And you, you wonder what the explanation is for why. I mean, it, it, I guess it goes back to compartmentalization and cognitive dissonance, that they can, they can tell what at some level they must know our lives and yet justify it to themselves on some level as well by sort of mm -hmm. compartmentalizing those things and rationalizing the way. And we all do that to some extent. Of course. It's right. not it's just human. You know, right. We all uh, rationalize away our own bad behavior, and, 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 and we all rationalize ends and means you know, to some extent. So it's not, it's not like they're, you know, this is something that's foreign to any of us, uh, but it's something that needs to be countered, certainly. Let's take a look at some of the rationalizations. Some of the arguments that they will try to make to show that the ACLU somehow is fighting this campaign against Christianity and Christian religion. Uh, one argument uh, that they'll often claim goes to the origins of the ACLU to begin with. They claim this has been started by a communist and it was originally an organization just meant to protect the rights of godless communists and so from its very inception, they see it as anti-religious. Right. Is there any truth to that? A, a small kernel of truth, yes. There were, in fact, communists uh, involved in the early ACLU, uh, including on the board of the ACLU. 
But that's largely because communists were being thrown in prison at the time for advocating their beliefs. And so, you know, who are the people who are going to be looking to, you know, enforce the First Amendment? People who were being victimized by having it not enforced. Roger Nash Baldwin was the principal founder of the ACLU, and he was a popular front socialist. You have to remember that at this time, we're talking 1920s. This was founded in 1919. At that time, a pretty significant portion of the American population was socialist. Um, I don't know the exact figures, but I, I seem to recall Eugene Debs getting like 20% running for president or something. So, um, you know, this wasn't as much a heretical opinion as today you say I'm a socialist and people, you know, you might as well say I'm an alien from Pluto. Back then, it wasn't that controversial. Um, you know, this was pre-New Deal. Yeah. This was before, and this was when we were sort of more of a harshly pure capitalist system uh, coming out of the robber baron era. And there were some really strong and legitimate critiques of that. And and the New Deal sort of sanded off the rough edges of mm-hmm. capitalism, set up you know a sort of floor beneath everybody, and put in some protections for those market externalities, and and did what the entire civilized world has done, which was build a system of capitalist in terms of wealth formation, but with a you know a small amount of socialism in there to sort of keep people from revolting <laughs> and keep the lid on things, you know. And so that's what took the steam out of the sails of, wind out of the sails of socialism. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, there were an awful lot of people who were socialists. And, and, and Baldwin was a socialist. And did these people even really know? I mean, if, if I remember my history correctly, um, I don't think people were fully aware of just what was going on in some of the so-called socialist countries. Right. Now, what happened with, with Baldwin was that um, in 1939... Uh, the Ribbentrop Pact, the, the, the Hitler-Stalin Pact was signed. And that was a huge event for the, the left around the world. I mean, an awful lot of people in Western Europe and the United States and, and England, uh, you know, who had socialist, um, had socialist beliefs and socialist tendencies were really taken aback by that. And, and that woke a lot of them up to, to the reality of Joseph Stalin, who mm-hmm. was in power at the time. And, and so after that, Roger Baldwin became a staunch critic of communism. He wrote a book called uh, New Slavery, Communism's betrayal of human rights, uh, and went you know all over the world. He spent time in the Far East, you know, watching what China at that point was doing, um, and 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 Vietnam, and 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 you know he saw that there was real oppression going on here, um, and and became a very vocal critic of that, and and so. Um, you know, they take this little kernel of truth and they leave out all of the other information yeah, the that makes it... the context. Right, that, that leads people to a different conclusion logically. After World War II, MacArthur was, you know, in charge of Japan. And he took, he took, uh, took Roger Baldwin with him to Japan to write Japan's new constitution. And then he also went to Austria and Germany and helped write their constitution. And, you know, I mean, Douglas MacArthur is not exactly a communist sympathizer. No. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a very over... It's a little tiny kernel of truth. Yeah. Um, you know, turned into this hyperbolic uh, exaggeration. and But it's the sort of thing that their followers aren't going to know that other information. Mm-hmm. Their followers are only going to hear he was a communist. Yep. You know? Selective and, evidence. Right. Shut, you know, the brain shut off at that point. It's all we need to know. You know? Well, it's not all you need to know. There's other information that changes the conclusion if you think about it. So mm-hmm. um, he also led a purge of the ACLU after the Hitler-Stalin Pact. Uh, he changed the charter of the ACLU. He changed the bylaws to forbid anybody who was a communist from being a member. He led a purge of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was one of the original board members, but was a member of the Communist Party, and had her ousted from the board. Hmm. You know, in fact, that was very controversial in the ACLU right. at the time. There are others who said, no, that's not right. You know, But he was so furious at what he saw of the oppression in the communist 
you know, world that he, he just wanted it gone. He didn't want any association with it whatsoever. So, you know, if anything, Baldwin went too far the other way right. in, in his reaction against communism. But again, they don't tell anybody that. But communism, of course, is not the only association uh, that gets people's passions flared up when we talk about the ACLU. You're a card-carrying member. I'm a card-carrying member, too. And in fact, I love pulling it out to show them I'm literally a card-carrying member when I get into a debate about these things. But, you know, I got to say, the ACLU, uh, as much as I support them and think they uh, need to be out there, they defend some pretty unsavory characters uh, like, you know, volunteering to come to the uh, defense of Rush Limbaugh or Jerry Falwell, some real scumbags, and that really bothers me. <laughs> not not those... to mention the KKK and the yeah, Nazis. Well, well, yeah, of course, the, the KKK and... Uh, uh, In whatever <laughs> order of, of, of evil you wish to put those, yeah. <laughs> and I agree with you. I mean, and it's one thing that, you know, they lost a third of their membership over the Skokie case. Mm-hmm. You know, this was, it's not like they were unanimous and united in their, in their belief here. A third of their membership quit. A third of their membership, you know, there's a lot of those members who were Jewish, mm-hmm. who just couldn't get past the fact they were supporting an American Nazi party, even though in reality they were supporting that principle right. that the government can't decide who can and can't have their say right. based on, you know, the obnoxiousness of what they have to say. And, and, uh, and that's why I say David Goldberger, who's now a professor of law at Ohio State, uh, is an American hero as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. That's what we should hold up as, uh, you know, as a symbol and a, a, a brilliant example of somebody who says, I am so passionate in my defense of freedom that I will defend ideas, I will defend the expression of ideas that make my blood boil. Right. You know, that absolutely, I'll spend my lifetime fighting against the, these ideas, but I can't fight against them using the government's power. Right. Talk about integrity. Something yeah. that we get, we, we hear praised a lot. Yeah. And there are a lot of people, I think, uh, who are very religious and conservative, who do have a lot of integrity. I'm really surprised that that point could be missed by so many people that, yeah, like you said, they're not defending the Nazis. They're defending the Bill of Rights. I mean, who in their right mind could think that David Goldberger, who had himself lost loved ones in the concentration camps, agrees with the American Nazi right. Party? I mean, that, that's simply absurd. But, you know, he, he took a powerful stand for freedom under the most difficult of circumstances. I mean, if you can defend that, you know, then that's all I need to know. You know, you, you don't have to prove that you're a friend of liberty, you know, if you're willing to defend that. Uh, and it's something that on my blog I do a lot of that, and I get into some heat from my readers on it. You know, for example, I am very strongly pro-gay rights. You know, mm-hmm. I am an, a, a passionate advocate of, of same-sex marriage, of total equality for gay people. Mm-hmm. But I'm just as passionate about defending the rights of those who disagree with me to have their say. Right. That, you know, if a kid, you know, the, like the, 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 the case in California that I've talked about many times, um, of the kid who wore the T-shirt to school that said homosexuality is shameful, mm. and mm-hmm. the school administration, you know, suspended him for it. That case is still in the courts, working its way back up to the Supreme Court again, and, and I'm on the kid's side. I think you're wrong. Right. But I think you have a right to say it. And incidentally, the head of the Gay Straight Alliance, 16-year-old girl who was the head of the Gay Straight Alliance at that club, said the same thing. Huh. Forget the principal who didn't understand the right. concept. A 16-year-old girl who, headed, who was on the other side of that issue said, listen, if we have a right to speak up for gay rights, he has a right to speak up against right. it. And I think, you know, I think my, people who are a minority of, of anything, of minority of viewpoint, orientation, race, 
I think they are more inclined to get that. I hope. I mean, I guess I don't have data right in front of me. Maybe I shouldn't just assume anything anymore. Well, you give an example. I, I have I, I write for my own blog, and then I also write for a blog called Positive Liberty. Um, and, and two good friends that are there, John Rowe and Jason Kuznicki. Um, one is a historian, one is a law professor. Both gay, um, and yet both libertarians on these issues. Mm-hmm. And they would just as, I mean, even they are gay. They've been the target. Right. Of, of, of anti-gay hatred, and yet they will just as fiercely stand up for that kid's right to say what he wants to say about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, you know, that it's similar to the, to the David Goldberger thing. This is, you've been the target of this yourself, and yet you'll still defend it. And that's mm-hmm. what being a friend of liberty is about. That's what liberty really is about, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I just have so much respect for them. And, and it's funny, I get into heat with some of my readers about that. I've got a certain group of readers that whenever I write about that, same old argument comes up in the comments yeah. all over again, and it's just like, okay, guys, haven't we been here through this already? You know, let's just substitute the vocabulary and see. You know, the form of the argument is probably not all that different than one you'll hear from it, it, the exactly, religious right. Exactly yeah. right. And, and when you say, you know, when the subject of hate speech laws comes up, mm-hmm. which is something that I am fiercely opposed to mm-hmm. on college campuses or whatever, I've been very critical of Canada, for example, who has a very strong hate speech law. Um, or what's this going on in Europe? I'm hearing more and more of these laws that are trying to be passed that exclude criticism of religion that's, from legal protections there, as free that, speech. That's, we're seeing more and more of a push for that. Um, and, it, and I'm just, uh, I reach for my, I don't even own a gun, but if I did, I'd reach <laughs> for it, you know. Um, I just, I, I, as much as I'm opposed to hate speech, as much as I will speak out, you know, against yeah. it, um, I will not use the government to censor it, and mm-hmm. I will stand up against those laws every chance I get. And and I have people who, you know, readers who really strongly disagree with me on that, and they say, and they say, you know, allowing anti-gay speech really causes, really hurts gay people. And I said, I have no doubt that it does. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that it does. But if we begin with the premise that the expression of ideas that we find offensive or hurtful, if that's the justification for banning them, there is no limit Mm -hmm. to what could be banned because almost any idea is offensive to someone. Mm -hmm. It's offensive to me, the thought of having the government do this. So I think we need to be very careful. And I think our courts over the last 60, 70 years have done a great job on free speech issues for the most part. I mean, there's a few blips here and there but for the most part they have been really good about drawing exceptions very narrowly if there are exceptions to free speech whether it's libel and slander whether it's incitement to violence mm-hmm. they've drawn them very narrowly and, and so that they don't because you know government power tends to expand and so they've drawn them narrowly enough that they don't continue to you know keep going out and, and, and drawing more right. like a black hole you know um, and that's something I'm really strongly in favor of is that if we're going to have exceptions, let's have them be very narrowly drawn so that, you know, the, 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 the burden of proof is always on the government. That's, that's sort of the touchstone of my political and legal philosophy mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, there's a great, I, I've, I've put this on my blog before HL Mencken had a, an essay where he said, People wonder, you know, what is it that H.O. Mencken really believes in? That he's good at knocking down other ideas, but what is, you know, what does he really passionately believe in? And I don't know that I can quote it directly, but he said, um, I believe in freedom out to the furthest limits of the feasible and the practical. I believe that you have the right to do 
or say or think anything as long as it is possible to imagine a habitable world in which you would be allowed to do, say, or think it. And he said, I think that the government has to prove its case doubly, triply, quadruply, and then they have to start over and prove it all over again. You know, they are against, you know, the burden of proof is so strongly against them and always in favor of the individual. Um, and and I, I just agree with them completely. I, I just think that we should be as free as possible to speak our minds. Only in the most dire of circumstances do we intrude on that. I grew up in sort of a Baptist background before I deconverted, and now I'm a religious skeptic. But even at my most fundamentalist, I never was against the First Amendment, the separation clause. Because when I was hearing the rhetoric about how God has been forced out of our public schools, I was thinking, well, no, because I'm holding a Bible study there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, and I was also aware of history uh, of my own denomination to know that the Baptists, very early on Absolutely. in America, were some of the greatest supporters of Jefferson uh, and, and, and religious freedom. The Baptists were on the, the losing end of church-state establishments throughout the colonial period. Mm -hmm. There were no officially Baptist states. They were officially Anglican and Congregationalist, and they made being a Baptist against the law. James Madison was originally inspired uh, in his passion for separation of church and state by hearing a group of Baptist ministers in jail in Virginia mm -hmm. singing hymns. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was what, you know, he stopped and talked to them. And that was what his friends said. I can't believe they've locked these men yeah. up for preaching their faith. That's unbelievable, you know. So I find it amazing when we have a situation like that, where protection of our civil liberties and protection of free speech in, in particular is both a secular, has a secular tradition and has a religious tradition behind it. I mean, there's plenty of groups like Americans United and other groups where that bring people together on these issues. How do we broaden that sphere? How do we convince people of a religious background that might be hostile towards the ACLU and these sort of things that, no, this is in your own self-interest. This is something where both sides, everybody wins with free speech. You know, the media never seems to pay much attention to the religious left or mm -hmm. the religious middle. It's always the religious right. It's always right. Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson or James Dobson. But the fact is, like you said, there's a long tradition of support for separation of church and state in the Baptist tradition in particular. The Jehovah's Witnesses have won immensely important battles for free speech and freedom of religion in this country. Um, Seventh-day Adventists, same way. Mormons, same way. Um, and so there are traditions within religious communities like this, and there are religious voices for this. I mean, Barry Lynn, the executive mm -hmm. director yeah. of Americans United for, Separate, for Separation of Church and State, is a Christian minister, Church of Christ minister. The oh, they're Church of Christ. They don't count. Yeah, right. Wait a minute, that's where Jeremiah writes from. Um, <laughs> but there are religious voices out there. There are, and, and, and I have many friends, you know, who are part of that community and who speak out loudly about these things. And I wish they would get more media attention. And, and I feel the same way about the evolution creationism issue. And this mm -hmm. is something that I've argued for years. A, a Christian with a moderate position on those things, a pro-science Christian or a pro-separation Christian is going to be listened to far more often and with much more of an open mind than someone like me or you. Mm -hmm. They're going to tend to tune us out. And, and so it's important, I think, for those voices to be heard and for us to sort of put them at the forefront. Mm -hmm. You know, in the evolution creationism, as you look at a guy like Ken Miller, 
Yeah. You know, example. a cell biologist from Brown who is a, a devout Catholic um, and who wrote the book Finding Darwin's God. That guy will get listened to in places that I'm not going to get listened to. And I wish we had a dozen of him. I wish we could clone him and send him all over because <laughs> he is such a powerful speaker and he's such a powerful thinker. And, he and what's start- great is he knows the arguments that the religious Absolutely. people are going to make in right. a way that sometimes you know secularists who might not have had a religious background have right. no clue. He speaks their language. Mm-hmm. They start from similar assumptions and end up at different conclusions. And he is more able to to coax them away from their assumptions than than you know uh, Richard Dawkins is going to be. Um, and so I think those people are enormously important. My friend Wes Salisbury, who was... Wesley's, He's been on the podcast. He was our yeah. first episode. Was he? Yep. Wesley's a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that is a powerful tool you know, to, for, for people like that to be part of our movement. Mm-hmm. And I think we need more and more of them. And I, I gladly work hand-in-hand hand with them. And I wish that... I, I'm always careful to, to tell people when I criticize... Religious absurdity. It's not a criticism of people who believe in God. Right. It's a criticism of this particular idea that's mm-hmm. obviously false. You know, um, and and I'm and I'm kind of careful to do that. And you read my blog. You, you've probably seen that there's a guy that comments in my blog <laughs> uh, yeah. who uses the name King of Ireland, and he came to my blog last year after seeing me on C-SPAN, mm-hmm. and he came there. Because he thought I needed to be stopped. He was so <laughs> angry after seeing my appearance on C-SPAN and seeing me mock the Bible curriculum stuff and mock Chuck Norris and, and Alan Keyes and all these people. And, and he came to my blog, you know, full of piss and vinegar and ready to read me the riot act. And over the last, um, you know, six months or so, he's, he's just slid more and more towards it. And he's not there yet. And he's still of pretty course. confused. Um, but he's I think he's sincere, and he has changed his positions, and we've had a respectful mm-hmm. civil dialogue over the over those months and I think that's a lot more effective than just saying you people are stupid mm-hmm. I mean there are some things that legitimately are stupid, and I have no right. problem calling them that, but I don't believe that the mere fact that someone believes in God makes them stupid right i i'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that ninety percent of the human race is stupid. <laughs> That makes me look pretty, you know, silly. Right, right. Uh, That's part of the reason why I enjoy your writing so much. And that's really the philosophy we take on our show, or at least we try to, is that um, um, to strike some sort of a middle ground. uh, Why does it have to be this extreme where you trash everything something believes and have no, no associations whatsoever... Uh, or you have to completely seek reconciliation and try to smooth things over all the right. time. Why can't honest people have serious disagreements, make jabs all the time, and still come together over critical thinking, over the conversation, and and start seeing things from their side? Yeah. Well, you, you work hard at that, and uh, I think a lot of us benefit from it way more than just the people who might read your blog, and we need as many people as many people taking that attitude as we can get. You know what I really think? We were talking about this before we started this, about you coming out to your students and having one of them say, you don't act like you know an atheist, yeah. which means you don't act like the atheist in my head. <laughs> I really think that if, if, if your average sort of Christian fundamentalist came to, you know, over to Vitalis with the people mm-hmm. from the Center for Inquiry and sat around and you know, broke bread with them and talked, They'd walk away with the same impression. They sort of right. build up this boogeyman in their head. 
And then you find out these are just everyday people. You right. know? And I think those kind of relationships, I mean, bigotry is based on ignorance. Mm-hmm. This is We've seen this time and time again. And why are we seeing anti-gay bigotry at an all-time low right now? Why have we seen such a change in society's attitudes? Because gay people have been coming out of the closet. Mm-hmm. Because now people, everybody, you know, 50 years ago, I would bet that 10% of the population might have said, yeah, I know someone who's gay. Yeah. They all did know someone who's gay. They just didn't know. Yeah, they, they didn't knew. know they knew. <laughs> but then, when Bob in Accounting comes out, and you go, yeah. you know, I like Bob in Accounting. We played in the softball team the last five years. He's a good guy. Right. Now, all of a sudden, that ignorance gets replaced with knowledge. They're not ogres. They're not the boogeyman. They're people just like you and I. That kind of familiarity is what changes those stereotypes, whether it's race, religion, sexual orientation, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that is our, the most powerful weapon in the long term. Um, against those kind of stereotypes. And, and, you know, atheists still have a lot of negative image to overcome. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think if more people come out like that and, and, yeah. and, and people get to know them, um, you know, I think that's a really positive, healthy thing. Thank you for all you do for skepticism, for critical thinking, and for free speech. And thanks for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thanks for having me. Okay, we are going to end this edition of Reasonable Doubts with a props and shit list. I haven't done the shit list in a while. No, we haven't. This is the time when we give praise to those who deserve it and heap scorn on those who need it. On my shit list this week, we have one that hits close to home or actually to school. Aquinas College, the Catholic college that I'll be graduating from, hopefully, in just a matter of days. Not anymore. <laughs> Not when they hear this. Not when they hear this. They recently canceled an event featuring a guest speaker, Dr. John Corvino. Dr. Corvino was coming to the school to do a presentation entitled, What's Wrong with Homosexuality? His answer, and mine, is in short, Nothing. The event was postponed and eventually canceled by the school administration because of complaints from parents and the financially important alumni of the school because Corvino was going to be speaking against, as they put it, core teachings of the Catholic Church, that being homosexuality is evil. The administration, however, who canceled this event, is not on my shit list. While I don't agree with many of the actions they took, nor in hindsight, I suspect, do the administrators themselves, they found themselves in a tricky situation. Rather than simply reacting, they are being calm, rational, and have set up a committee to create a policy that will address these special times when the inherent schizophrenia of a liberal arts Catholic college comes to a head. It is, for the reactionaries on both sides of the issue, not a popular choice, but I think it is the correct rational choice. So props to them. The group that is making it onto my shit list is the very small minority of students and allegedly theology professors who, rather than taking their concerns about Aquinas funding the speaker to come to the school, that's the real issue, is that the money for Corvino to come to the school was coming from a student group, which comes from the school, of course. So rather than going to the administration with this issue, They decided that they would go to the media 
and the alumni. Aquinas's president himself did、What? not hear about the event until the day before it was supposed to happen. That's not the way this should go. If they have concerns about something that's going to happen on campus, they need to take it up with the powers that be on campus, not go on to the National Catholic Forums and complain about this, not call the alumni, not call parents and students in to complain to the media. We've had some experience with the theology department at Aquinas College before, haven't we? We've had a little bit of experience with、and、them. Yes, we're kind of used to the way that they like dealing with things, and it, it tends to be character assassination and、mm-hmm. uh, intimidation. Basically, the way you would have to deal with things if you were if you believed in complete utter nonsense that you couldn't justify through normal routes of. Human civility and communication, right? And this is certainly not true of a majority of the faculty and staff at Aquinas. It may not even be no, true of all. all of the theology department. No, not at all. But there is certainly a group. There are some characters. The real reason why they've gone on the shit list, though, is because since lobbing this grenade onto our campus and causing all of this trouble, calling in the media, they've disappeared. Not a one of them will stand up and say. I was the one who was upset by this. I was the one who so hates and fears homosexuality that I will not allow someone to come to my school and say different than that. They've slunk back into the shadows. They are behaving like cowards. If you believe that this is so important that we at Aquinas should not be allowed to hear points of view different than the official Catholic position, stand up and be counted. Give us your name. Don't go on these national Catholic forums calling yourself the Hamburglar, which is, by the way, one of the key players in the game. Tell us who you are. Those of us who support Corvino and free speech and the liberal arts aspect of our college are glad to give our names, to sign petitions, and all of that. Where are you? Where have you all gone since you did this? Apparently, this group of people believes that the Catholic is more important than the college in Aquinas College, and the moment that that becomes true is the moment that Aquinas becomes a joke. I don't know how you feel about this, Dave, but what do you think about inviting these people to come on the show to defend their views here on Reasonable Doubts? I'm all for it. Maybe someday we will get them to come on the show. I have extended an invitation to them already, and they have. Not taken us up on it yet. If I can track down if any of these people will actually have themselves be known, I will gladly get them in here and sit down with them. We don't mind sharing other points of view. Absolutely. In fact, I'm all for the official Catholic position on homosexuality getting as much airplay as possible. Yeah. Because I truly believe that the more good Catholics hear. The official Catholic position on homosexuality: the more horrified they'll be by their church. And what we really need to change—oh, yeah, just give them rope. Absolutely, Here you go. here's some rope. More, more rope. We don't need to change the school policies. The policies of the Catholic Church are what needs to change. And the only way that's going to happen is if those Catholics who disagree with these policies do something about it. The three of us can't effectively change anything about the Catholic Church, but those believers. Who are sympathetic to homosexuality? Those pro-choice Catholics need to make themselves known. I, I love that my school is very active when they see an injustice 
they get upset and they go after it on both sides, and that's fantastic. That's one of the reasons why I'm proud to go to Aquinas. But there is a a productive way to respond to this, and there is a yeah. screaming match, and that's not what we need. We all have respect for that institution. It's it's as far as Christian college or as any sort of religious university goes. I mean, they're very free thinking and open minded. Absolutely. Again, the objection to is to the hypocrisy and secrecy of the people who are exactly. behind this and the cowardice, as you very rightly pointed out. We're going to end it there. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out our Facebook group and our website, doubtcast.org. Keep those letters coming in with questions, comments. Go on iTunes, review the show, please. Tell a friend so that we can go forth and make doubters of all nations. We can only do that with your help. Thanks for listening. Adios. Bye. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission.